You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Doc G, and you are listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. A little bit of a trigger warning here. I was tempted to erase about three minutes of this conversation. There was a moment where the topic got somewhat racially sensitive. I would say 50 to 75% of people listening to this probably wouldn't know the difference except that I mentioned it. On the other hand, probably the other 25% would be triggered. I tried to manage it as well as I could during the conversation, and then in the after show, we come back to the topic. After a lot of thought, I decided not to erase the segment Uh I'm just asking Grace from the audience to realize that some of these conversations are difficult, and I don't believe anyone had bad intentions. Take a listen and let me know what you think. Hi, this is Wally. This is Jen Smith from Frugal Friends. This is Tony Bradshaw. And you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. I grew up in two very different neighborhoods. One was a little rougher less wealthy, and definitely not financially savvy. We didn't talk about Wall Street nor our own businesses. Wealth was aspirational. We dreamed of winning the lottery. Then come high school, we moved to a much more exclusive neighborhood. Kids not only drove nice cars and wore expensive clothes, but they were fluent in talking about markets and balance sheets and profits. Money was earned, not won. These two environments, or better I say cultures, taught me that your outlook on wealth can be strongly influenced by who you grow up with. So what happens if all you know is the first neighborhood? How do you learn about building wealth? How and should you adjust your mindset? Tony Bradshaw is on a mission to battle poverty by providing hope, education, and inspiration for people to become millionaires. He is the author of Millionaire Choice, Millionaire or Not, You Can Choose. Wally Miller is a Latina, first-generation college graduate, daughter of an immigrant, born and raised in New York City, and now a first-generation millionaire. She started a financial coaching business where she helps primarily women of color budget, save, and begin building wealth. And last, but of course not least, Jen Smith is a blogger behind Modern Frugality and co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Frugal Friends. She's also a frequent panelist on Earn and Invest. Tony, Wally, Jen, welcome to the show. Tony, I want to start with you. I described a little bit about the neighborhoods I grew up in. Tell me about the neighborhood you grew up in. 
Man, uh, looking back, actually, my dad still lives in the same house I grew up in. They bought it when I was about a year old and got to be too small of a house from my pa- my sister was born. So they he was a carpenter and expanded it. Man, we had it was rough. It was a bit rough. There was it was a, it wasn't quite as rough as it was a couple blocks over from us. But the street we lived on, you know, we had some drug dealers that lived across the street. I remember one day cleaning up our living room and finding a bullet hole through the front window that went into the kitchen. I don't know how long it had been there. I, I we didn't use that room very often and, and, and found that. But, you know, growing up, not just in the neighborhood, but, you know, parents mismanaging money. And, and I still remember taking the water key, which is something you can pick up at Home Depot and going out and turning the water back on after the water company turned our water off because the bills weren't getting paid. And, and that happened on more than one occasion. And uh, just lots of stories like that from myself, uh, a lot of broken homes, a lot of families that were single parent homes in the neighborhood. Probably one story I remember was uh, one of my good friends at the time going down to hang out with him and his, his a buddy of ours that were at their house and opening the front door. And I heard, I smelled this new aroma that I had never smelled before. And they said, Hey, you shouldn't be here. You should leave. And I, at that point, I, I realized that they were engaging in some drug activity as, you know, 15 year olds. And I later found out that his dad was actually a drug dealer. And that tended to be more of the norm than not the norm for the neighborhood that I grew up in. I was about to say, Tony, what were your role models for wealth? Obviously, that's one of them is the drug dealer. Did you have more healthy role models growing up? How do you spell that word? (laughs) No, we we I did not know what that word meant. You know, my parents worked a lot. My mom worked at a convenience store as a manager, managed three different convenience stores at one time because that line of work was very, very dangerous. One of the most dangerous jobs in Nashville at the time my mom was robbed at gunpoint. I believe three to five different times, which she shared stories with me about that. But that's what she needed to do to put us through the school that she had put us in and uh, to pay bills because my dad was part of a company that, you know, uh, shut down Nashville Bridge Company or went through strikes. And I remember going down to the the, uh, streets and sitting by the uh, trash barrels, burning trash in the winter while he was on strike. And and, uh, he did that for a while. You know, her, her lifestyle, working 100 hours a week sometimes, you know, almost having a nervous breakdown from working too much, actually. Thankfully, that didn't last forever. It was just a season of life for our family. But that's kind of the experience that we had. So I didn't really have any models for wealth growing up. It wasn't until I was 25 that that started to change for me. And we're going to talk about what happened in the mindset shift at 25. But Wally, first, I want to ask you about your childhood You describe yourself as a Latina first-gen college graduate, daughter of an immigrant. I imagine you probably grew up around a lot of immigrants, too. Were people bringing money with them to the U.S.? No. (laughs) Actually, it was quite the opposite. Usually, they were coming with nothing more than the clothes that they were wearing, and that was definitely my dad's story. I mean, if anything... After being here for a while, or actually as quickly as possible, my dad was sending money back home in order to support not just mom and dad, but his younger siblings as well. And I think that's more common of the story. Interesting. As opposed to this idea of building wealth per se, every extra dollar was going right back out the door. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I mean, I remember when we would travel as kids, we would travel back to Ecuador where my dad is from. We usually went to Ecuador with quite a few suitcases and came back with no suitcases, right? We just left behind the things that we brought with us. And that was pretty common. 
So this idea of having a million dollars would be very foreign to you as a child, watching people who were accruing money, sending it away pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, I related so much to the story that Tony shared, right? This whole idea of wealth, the models that I had was, you know, unless you were an athlete, a football star, a basketball star, or perhaps you were an actor or some type, you know, some type of, you know, superstar, that was my idea of wealth, right? So we never used that term. It wasn't very, it was a foreign concept to me about what wealth meant and who was wealthy because I didn't know anybody who was wealthy in my eyes. There were some people who had a little bit more and what that meant was maybe they had nicer clothes. Maybe they lived in a nicer neighborhood. Like that was, (laughs) that was the definition of being not even wealthy, but just being a little bit more comfortable. But this whole idea of wealth was really foreign. Jen, as I listened to Tony and Wally speak, I realized that if you'd asked me to describe my upbringing as a kid, I would have said middle class, upper middle class. As an adult, looking back, knowing what I know now, we came from a fairly upper class family. Tell us about your upbringing. What wealth strata would you have put yourself on as a child? And and how do you look at that now as an adult? So I think I'm somewhere kind of on the spectrum, like a little lower than upper middle class. We were very solid middle class consumers. So like we had every opportunity to build wealth, but again, wealth was not a term we used either. It's like if there was a family with a bigger house or something, that was equated to income. Like they were rich because they made more money. The concept of saving and investing was absolutely foreign to my family. And we just, we... I lived in a dual income household and went to public school for free. And every single dollar that came into our house got spent. And so we never had debt, but we never saved or talked about money. It was always about consuming more and more. I'm listening to you and I'm comparing your stories and like you said, you spent like a middle or upper middle class family, but in a sense, you still at the end of the day probably had very little in the family bank accounts, something we would compare almost to how people who are poor are today. It was unfortunate because I feel like my our family story is so common. Like when I talk to other people, like now I'm in my 30s, I talk to other people my age and their parents have no retirements. Like they are going to have to find some way if their parents need more than social security to support their parents because our parents wanted to give us the world, so to speak. They wanted to give us more than they had because typically our grandparents were very frugal. And so that was kind of, I think, what brought on this generation of, of parents just spending, spending, spending and not saving or investing for retirement. Tony, we're talking about this idea of retirement savings. Your book is called Millionaire's Choice. Obviously, when you're younger, the ability to conceptualize even what a million dollars was, was probably fairly difficult for you. You say at 25, things changed. What happened? Yeah. So I had gone to, you know, my parents supported me to go to college and I got an engineering degree, but you know, they, they, the most money my mother ever made during her lifetime was around 35,000. 
my dad now he's still working at age 70 is making, you know, I probably shouldn't say that, but he's making a little bit more than that. But um, yeah, as a cabinet maker, but for me, the first time that the lights really came on was when I got my W2 out of college, my first year out of college and with a full-time engineering job and I had made $39,000, but I just looked, I'm like, man, I've got like 500 bucks in the bank. And I'm living in a studio bedroom apartment at my parents' house, paying very little rent, like it, it, as little as you could possibly pay. And, and you know, it, it, they just made me a really good deal. It was a great deal. And I had furniture that I made because I'm, you know, son of a carpenter. I had a, a desk that my dad made, uh, a stereo, which I, I was like, I'm going to get married someday. I better bring the electronics. My wife's probably going to bring the furniture. I just, you know, I'm a planner. So I'm thinking that way. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. I was right. She brought the furniture. I brought the electronics. <laughs> So I spent a lot of money on those electronics, still using them, a lot of them today. You know, I looked at that and I'm like, man, I have $16,000 in debt. I made 39 grand last year. I have never seen that much money in my life. Something's wrong. Something's got to change. Like I can never do next, like ever again, what I did last year. And that's when I started doing what I knew to do, which is learn, right? I went to the bookstore, Books a Million, out one of the surviving book chains, right? That's out in a, a local area. And I just started reading magazines, just started getting my hands on everything I could to read and learn. And I, I learned something in that time frame, which is this money is really not that complicated. You know, and for me, it's really just more of a math problem. You, you know, you, you, you put the right variables in, you solve the equation and boom, you know, things happen. And, you know, in that year, actually within a 90 day period, I went from being a broke guy to having a vision of becoming a millionaire that's debt free. And I set a goal of doing that uh, by age 40, which was I was able to do. Uh, it did not happen exactly like I planned. So, you know, and that's the beauty of that, because the plans don't have to be perfect. They just have to get you moving in the right direction. I'm a big believer of that. I did not plan on having six kids and paying $1,500 in diapers per kid. I did not plan on being out of debt, but my wife having $20,000 in debt that she had accrued. And so those are kind of hurdles that kind of came along that, through wrinkles in the in the plan, but we we were still able to get there. It didn't happen exactly like we did. And you know, probably one of the biggest things is realizing your limits. I think at that time, you know, I I saw where my mother was financially, and I thought, man, I made thirty nine grand. I made more than my mom made. I'm doing pretty good. I'm twenty five years old. She's forty five. I've arrived. Like I'm in the right place. And what I realized much later was that that kind of thinking really limits. You know, and I had never imagined th- that I would ever make a hundred thousand dollars in a year in a as an income. Like that was so far beyond my concept of threshold. But I still believed I could become a millionaire because that was the vision. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people are missing today is that there is no vision. They they don't have a vision for their future. And I, you know, I, I worked for Dave Ramsey for fifteen years, and I love Dave, and I love what he's doing. He's helping so many people. But he's allowing people to borrow his vision for their life. And I think it's a good place to start, which is a debt-free vision, right? That's what he really pushes. And because people don't have their own vision, they're able to latch on to something. And for me, it was you know creating a millionaire vision at age 25. Wally, I find it interesting when I hear Jen tell her family story and then Tony talking about making 39000 and that being like more money than he imagined he was going to make. It really hits me that we sometimes get confused that we think we have an income problem. And I'm wondering if you at some point came to that same conclusion that maybe this is not an income problem per se, but there were other issues that you had to get right. 
Yeah, I think this whole idea of not only thinking that it's possible for you, but also defining what that means, right? Defining what financial stability means, defining what wealth means or financial security. I think for a really long time, I thought I was doing things right and I had made it because I was very fortunate to get into a high paying job, also making more than what my parents had ever made and having this realization that I I actually received my social security administration, you know, like earned income report for the last several years. I'm not sure if you get it, you know, after working 10 years or after a certain amount of income. But I remember receiving that and realizing that it had all of my income from my very first job at 15 until that age, which I think at the time I was 27 or so, and wondering where in the world did all that income go. And I realized that what was happening was I was kind of making up for the the lack that I had in my childhood, right? Not being able to have the option of clothing and shoes. I did save money, but I also didn't know what to do with the rest. And so my idea was, okay, my bills are paid. I'm putting money aside. I can spend the rest. And there was no financial literacy. There was no knowledge of what to do. There was no concept of you're not just saving money for when that tire blows out on your car, but what about investing or what about what is 10, 20, 30 years going to look like? And so Not only is it missing the idea of, you know, at that time I felt financially confident, but in reality, I wasn't really all of that financially secure because I was spending and wasting really a lot of the money that I was making. Jen, it seems like both Tony and Wally had these moments where their mindset switched. You talked about how you grew up and kind of your family's money mindset. When did you realize that that was probably not the way you were going to ultimately be successful? Was there a certain person or event that turned the tide? Well, I think like any arrogant 18-year-old, I thought I would just immediately be better at money than my parents, that I would immediately have more money as soon as I graduated college. And to an extent, like it quickly did happen. Yes, I may I chose a a not very lucrative field to go into so it didn't happen immediately but I kind of just assumed that I would do that and so but in doing that I amassed you know over $50,000 of debt and so I think it was that and I had never experienced debt before so that was kind of the catalyst for me that just gave me a lot of like guilt and shame and anxiety and I didn't think I could escape from it because I what I had 50 grand in debt, but I wasn't even making 50 grand in a year. So I just didn't see how it could happen. And so when I got engaged and my now husband said he wanted to pay off his debt and become completely debt-free, that was kind of the the catalyst for starting to get out from under that. But I, I think I I had this like I it was so similar. To, to what both Wally and Tony were saying. Like I, I got out of college, started making money, and I wanted to have I wanted to have the things that I didn't have growing up, which looking back was like very naive. I had so much growing up, but I still t- couldn't have like the nice thing that the quote unquote rich people had. 
And so that's what I really wanted. I always wanted something that I didn't have. And that kind of kept me from making small changes and small moves to get financially stable. But as soon as Travis and I got married, we started paying off our debt and paid off $78,000 in two years. And I think the things I learned over that two-year period, it wasn't a person per se that did it for me, but it was just this anger with myself and and my situation of like, oh, we could have done so much better, but we didn't know. And and then wanting to not let anybody else not know about what could happen, like what could be. Tony, we're all describing this kind of same time period. We're young adults. We're looking at our habits and what we grew up with and trying to figure out what we want our future to be. You name your book, The Millionaire's Choice. What is The Millionaire's Choice? Like, What is that kind of decision that pushes people to move in the right direction? Yeah, I think for me, the reason the, the, the name became The Millionaire Choice, it actually started out as another name. And then a, a buddy of mine talked me into changing it to that because I wanted it to be empowering for people, right? Because when I look at all the people I talk to about wealth, even my family members, there is this sense of not being able to move up in social status, if you want to call it that, or whatever opportunity. And it's just not true. You know, I've, I've interviewed coming up on close to 100 people on my podcast, millionaires, and all of them tell this very similar stories to us on the show you know, meager means, grew up in low-income families, some of them in worse situations. And each story I hear just reaffirms the same thing, the same principle that the, the process of becoming a millionaire, it's pretty much the same. It's a repeatable process. And, and that's what makes it exciting is because it's not like just one person did it. It's like hundreds and millions, you know, over 10% of American households are millionaire households. Over 40% of the millionaires in the world live in the United States or right at 40%, you know, And when you look at those numbers, you go, wow, like, what does that mean? Why am I being left behind? And I do believe it comes down to the choices, but not just the money choices, the financial choices. It comes down to life choices as well. So like, although my parents didn't invest, and I think for a lot of Americans, the stock market seems like something that's not approachable, like it's not available to them. So the people that are stuck, the 70% of people that are living paycheck to paycheck, don't see an opportunity. They don't have a vision for something that could be different. And so you kind of get stuck. So you have to get unstuck. And sometimes that means you have to get, you have to be introduced to something new or, you know, that pivot in time. So like, you know, I mentioned Dave Ramsey earlier, you know, he's got a radio show. It's one of the most listened to radio shows on the planet. Right. And, and so he's catching people at their point of biggest pain. That's usually when people wake up, they're hurting really badly. They're struggling with it to pay their bills. Like they don't see a way out. And then they come across Dave and they're able to, to get this kind of debt-free mindset. Others like me start with a wealth mindset. I just went, that sucks. I don't want to be there. Let's change, right? And, and that's a, another model that I see people get. I think that model's a little bit harder to grab a hold of at first. It's almost like you have to go through stages. I call that the four money buckets. You know, it's kind of like the broke bucket or the just getting by bucket or the future millionaire bucket or the millionaire bucket. Which bucket do you want to be in? And, and so you've got to decide that for yourself. But, you know, I thought I was pretty special when I started doing my podcast because I'm like, hey, I was a millionaire at age 40. That's pretty cool. And then I started interviewing all these people who made their millionaire choice at age five. And they're like, mom would not let me get a candy bar at the store. She told me not to ask because she didn't want people to think we didn't have money. And I went home and I thought about that problem. I'm like, you know, it's a problem. Like, why can't I get that candy bar? And he's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be rich when I grow up. And so from age five, to age 25 when he became a millionaire, that was his journey. 
And so he made the choice at five and he did it by 25. Others take longer. I mean, it's going to vary for different people, but there's a pattern that I'm seeing as I do more and more of this and talk to more and more people. And, and that excites me because I think, you know, like us on this show, Wally and Jen and you, it's like, we've just got to get that message out to more people to help more people believe that they can do it and then equip them to be able to do it. That excites me a lot. My financial wellness journey transformed when I realized that there were other people doing things differently. And so I discovered the FIRE movement, right? Financial independence, retire early. And it was at that point when I realized that this could be possible for me. And it gave me permission to have a dream that I didn't know that I was allowed to have, right? So you know, in the introduction, Doc G mentioned that I was from New York City. Well, I was from the Bronx. I was raised in the Bronx and it's the poorest borough in New York City. And so I didn't even have this concept that we were poor because everybody around us was on Section 8. Everybody around us had low income family. And then a lot was from a low income family. And in a lot of ways, I was privileged. I had both my mom and and dad in the household And this is huge in New York City. Both of them had vehicles, right? (laughs) Like that was big. And so I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine. We've been friends since uh, junior high school. And she said, I thought you were rich because you could, you know, you had $20 one time. And I remember my dad a couple of times, maybe in the, I wouldn't even say monthly, but a couple of times a year would give me like a $20 bill and I could spend it and go to McDonald's with my friends or go to the candy store or whatever it was. And that in her mind, I was rich because I had this money to go to McDonald's or I had this money to go to the candy store. And so one of the things You know, I, this whole idea of being a millionaire was such a foreign concept. I I didn't even know that that was even possible. So I didn't know that it was a choice for me. I didn't know it was a choice for me at 15. I didn't even know it was a choice for me until I was in my thirties and sort of discovered the steps that people took. And this idea of making sure that we relay the message of going beyond financial survival, right? Because for so many people, it's just about surviving, but it's about financially thriving. It is about really going beyond just feeling financially secure, which so many people are still struggling for. They just want to get there. Wally, you are a first-generation college graduate. To use Tony's terminology here, On some level, did you feel like your millionaire choice was going to college? Yeah, you might not have thought it specifically as a million dollars. But from that kind of early standpoint, was it in your head that if I just go to college, all of this is going to work out? The idea of being a millionaire or being wealthy, I, I, I never had that idea. I never had that thought. What I thought college would provide me was a way to have a good job and to Really, I mean, this is sort of a, a low bar, but I said, I won't be on welfare, right? That was my idea. I will be able to get a good income and pay my bills. And what a good income is, is, you know, very different if you live in Idaho versus if you live in New York City. But I said, if I could have enough income in order to pay my bills, I will be doing okay. And so, yeah, I think college was a fantastic way for me to, you know, it opened up doors for job opportunities that I wouldn't have had, had I not had that college education. But I wouldn't say that the college education or going to college opened up my mind that I could be wealthy or that I could be a millionaire. 
Jen, I, I want you to piggyback off that. I mean, do you find that either in your personal life or in the people you interact with, with modern frugality and frugal friends, that there's this idea that college in itself will provide that mindset or know-how to get you there financially? And do you find that it does for, for people? Well, I think we only focus on the income portion, which is a very important portion, but it's all we talk about. And so, yes, college does provide the opportunity for you to make a higher income. I I mean, my mindset was the same as Wally. I just thought it was going to keep me out of, you know, welfare, made me have a, you know, a three bedroom house where my parents only had a two bedroom. You know, I thought it was going to like do that for me. Never did I think I would become a millionaire. I didn't know what a millionaire was. I thought a millionaire was making a million dollars a year because it was all tied to annual income. And so the concept of saving and investing was foreign. Saving was foreign. Don't I mean, investing was like not even a concept. So it was all like, okay, I'm making more money. And so obviously, if you have more money, you're going to spend it. So that's what this increase in income has done for so many people. It's only given people more to spend with. We are talking to Tony Bradshaw. He is the author of Millionaire Choice, Millionaires or Not, You Can Choose. Wally Miller, who started her financial coaching business, where she helps primarily women of color budget, save, and begin building wealth. And Jen Smith, who's the blogger behind Modern Frugality. We are going to take a short break. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Listen, investing is hard enough as it is. Not only do you have to figure out what, but how. That's why I'm excited to tell people about public.com. On public.com, you can start with small slices of shares, invest in what you believe in with any amount. It is a social platform where you can exchange ideas and insights with a community of investors. Learn how to invest and surround yourself with a community of others who are investing in stocks and ETFs as well as crypto. There's also a number of built-in educational features that help you learn as you go. You can invest safely with volatility reminders that let you know investments like crypto are a little bit riskier. Start investing with as little as $1 and get a free slice of stock up to $50 when you join public.com today. Visit public.com slash EAI to download the app and sign up. That's public.com slash EAI. 
This is valid for U.S. residents only 18 and older. Subject to account approval, see public.com slash disclosures. This is not investment advice. Let me reintroduce you. Tony Bradshaw is on a mission to battle poverty by providing hope, education, and inspiration for people to become millionaires. Wally Miller is a Latina first-generation college graduate, daughter of an immigrant, and born and raised in New York City, and now she is a first-generation millionaire. And Jen Smith is the podcaster behind the Frugal Friends podcast. Tony, up to this point, we've been talking a lot about personal responsibility. I feel like to continue this conversation, we also have to address systemic factors that affect people's ability, especially to kind of come from an upbringing of poverty. How much of becoming a millionaire truly is a choice? How much of it is personal responsibility versus systemic inequalities we have in our system? Is it changing the politics? Is it changing the laws? Or is it changing ourselves? I think those are good questions. And I would be probably arrogant to think that I've got all the answers for that, right? Because it affects so many people. So I can only speak from what I've kind of discovered in talking to different people and just looking at the problem. One of my goals is to go, hey, I don't want to just keep doing the same thing all the other white personal finance guys have done you know, for the last 60 years, because it's not changing the system. We're still got the same statistics, more or less. You know, Over 70% of people are living paycheck to paycheck. But let me share this with your Listeners, and you know, with you guys uh, on the podcast, you know, when I worked at uh, a previous organization in the personal finance space, we did what every company does. We made great products, we had a great business model, and we made revenue and profit. That's what companies do. But one thing after I had left there, I realized is we didn't really have a strategy to help people at the lowest level of our economic system. And that really frustrated me. We didn't, we didn't even have conversations about it. There were no strategies. We just did what every other company does, which is be successful, make great products and, and make profit. And so if for the first time ever, I had seen a statistic that showed the wealth disparity between you know Black Americans, White Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Asian Americans. And, and I had to come to grips with that, like those numbers. At that time, what I saw was that you know guys like me have a, a net worth of about 13 to 15x what a Black American would or a Black male would have. And so Roughly one hundred thirty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars in net worth, compared to about you know five or six thousand dollars in net worth, and I really wrestled with that problem because I'm going, how does that like why is it why is that and why did I work at one of the top personal finance education companies in America but also in the world, and we never talked about that problem like why why is that and it's it's not to beat that company up, it's just to go that's just not the nature of how things work and it hit me for the first time that. The reason the system is like that is because you can't make money off broke people. And so there's not a group of people trying to figure out how to help the people that need it the most because they're not monetizable. And that was the the biggest issue that I think came to the topic for me. At the same time, I don't want to make excuses because I've met plenty of people who have come out of that and still been successful. One of my favorite is a guy named Willie Mandrell. He was on my podcast. And Willie's story is really awesome. He's a, a, a black American, black male up in Boston, millionaire in the real estate industry. But it's not his story that excited me. It was a story about his grandmother who moved up from, I believe, Mississippi with a sixth grade education. So a black woman born in the you know, 40s and 50s and moved to Boston and became a millionaire with a sixth grade education. And so, so she went through the civil rights deal. She went through all of the major problems but yet she still accomplished that. And so that's the person you've got to look at and go, okay, what made her different? What can we learn from her story 
that empowers others to do it. There's definitely some systemic stuff going on, but it doesn't give us an excuse to say it can't happen or it doesn't happen. We just have to come up with a better system to, to reach the people that need it the most. And, and that's one of my goals. You know, I love being on this podcast with you guys and having this conversation because I think it takes us coming together trying to solve that. The government's not going to solve that problem without going into politics. I don't care what political party you're with. Neither one of them are going to solve that problem. So that's my thoughts. Yeah, I think Tony touched on something that I think we are very scared to talk about in the personal finance industry. And it's that broke people, the people who need this the most, like don't have the money to pay for personal finance products. And like as personal finance gurus, we love money and we want to be rich. We want to be those success stories that, you know, make millions of dollars. It just shouldn't. It's the wrong goal. I think there's there's a balance that we don't talk about. Yes, there is there's systemic problems that need to be addressed. Yes, there are choice problems that need to be addressed. But we've talked several times about how we were in situations because we didn't know any better. There was nobody to tell us any different. And so I think some of the ownage is on people with privilege, people like us that now know to go in without, you know, goals of monetary gain and to tell people that need to hear this how to handle money, how to save and invest in its significance. And no, you know, no bill or law is going to put people in front of other people. But I think it, it, creating more mentors and creating more programs for mentorship or just seeing a kid and telling them like, hey, think think about saving and investing, but not that like surface level. But you know what I mean? But like, that's the stuff that we need more of. And I, I love what you're saying there, Jen, because we got to get aggressive, right? So, you know, I've got six kids and I'm a first generation millionaire, first generation college graduate to my knowledge. Uh, none of my cousins, none of my relatives have done either of those. And now I'm faced with the, the opportunity or the challenge to go, how do I pass these financial principles on to my children? Not just a debt-free mindset. They've got that. All of my kids are very frugal. They don't go out and spend money like crazy. They don't do all these things. But now I've got to teach them to get a hold of a concept that I didn't get to I was 25. So I don't have a model to do that. You know, my youngest is 10, my oldest is 21. And, and last year during COVID, was the first time I actually started talking to them about investing. Like, hey, I got to get you guys investing. Like, I got to get you making your first investments. And that's my, my goal to get them to start shifting their own mindsets and not just ride my coattails. And that's, that's what happened to me. I think at 25, I said, you know what? I don't want to be in debt and I, don't, and I do want to invest. So I carved up my paycheck into three pieces. One was one third living money, one third debt money, and one third investing money. And it's just a very simple construct that allowed me to move forward. And I'm trying to do something very similar with my kids. But I wanted to add this too. So you can't make money off broke people, but the the systemic problem of the system, and I'm going to be very aggressive here, is we are living in a slave-based financial system. When you look at the core of what it is and what it does and how the banking system is set up and break it down, there's a wonderful book called The Creature from Jekyll Island. I recommend everybody read that book. It's about the founding of the Federal Reserve Bank. But when you have families that have 10 or 12 or 15 credit cards, and some of those credit cards have 30% interest on them, that to me is a very slave-based system that is structured so that money all flows to a certain channel or a certain group of people. 
And, and that really bothers me. And, you know, we've all seen the payday loan facilities and you go into those where people are saying, hey, I need money now. And they take their gamble against their paycheck, basically, to get financing because they got to pay bills. And it just creates a more systemic problem. And those are all systemic things that everybody has to face. And how do you help people dig out of that? You know, I'm hoping to create what I call a citywide financial transformation model. I don't know if I'll ever be successful with this, but that's where my head's at because I'm going, hey, if I can find a system or create a system with with people in groups, that's that's a start, right? So how can you transform everybody's financial mindset? And so the way I look at it with Nashville, rich or poor, what if everybody in Nashville had a, a millionaire plan just like I did when I was 25? That's one of the goals because that's the vision. And then you got to figure out how to accomplish that. But Jen, you're, you're spot on with what you're saying. You know, people are not going to get the help that they need and the people that need it the most, the people aren't strategically getting there, the financial advisors and the other professionals. Tony, let me ask you to clarify, because um, certainly I think that word slave brings out lots of emotion. And so what I suspect or, or help me understand what you're really talking about is, is more of a power-based relationship. I think people look at slavery and say, okay, you know, what was done to black people, people of color in the United States was horrendous and illegal and bad and in, in so many different ways. Help clarify to me what you mean when you say that specifically. Well, I think when you face the reality of the financial system and not everybody's trapped in it, right? So like somebody like me, I'm not playing in the system or I'm playing the system rather than the system playing me. And so for 70% of people living paycheck to paycheck, they're getting played by the system. And, and that system is designed to flow money to a very few few individuals. And you know whether that word is offensive or not to certain people, which I'm sure it is, but when when somebody let's just look at taxes in general when when the federal reserve bank was created and the irs was created both of which those are more of federal reserve banking and the same people that own our federal reserve bank own all the banks in all the federal central banks in the entire world so when you look at that you are actually looking at a financial system that creates debt inside of a a, a country and then all of the interest that is paid on that debt flows up to these people that issue that money or have the right to print and issue that money so effectively, and, and the tax-based system too. So our government right now is around $30 trillion in debt. And a lot of that debt is held by central bankers. Now, some of that debt's held by other people, but when you look at the breakdown, it's pretty crazy the, who owns the debt. Like the Social Security uh, Office actually owns U.S. government debt. So that's an investment for the Social Security Office. The, the pension plans for the U.S. government are actually debt. That are owned. So when you look at the system and start breaking it down, you're like, wow, that, you know, I pay taxes and 40% of my tax money goes into this system that flows into this debt construct. And so we're trained to think that our tax dollars are actually going to make our country better. But once you actually start looking at the way the tax systems broke down and how things work, it, it's not exactly, that's not exactly how it works. And so when you look at all these pieces, I do, I do agree with that. And some people don't realize. Back in the day, I don't remember, it wasn't too long ago. I've got this in my book, but it's not fresh on my memory. But our tax rates for certain income levels was as high as like 95%. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty outrageous just to look at that. And when you look at the founding of our country, there were no income taxes whatsoever. It was all taken off tariff taxes. Now, whether or not that system's better or worse, I can't really describe that. That's beyond my, my scope. But notwithstanding, I benefited from the system. Like I said before, there's you know 40% of the world's millionaires live in America. 
10%. So there are people who have understood the system and know how to work it, but the vast majority of people do not. And those are the ones that are being, for lack of a better word, being uh, farmed. One of the things that that I feel like is really important and is really important to mention here is that when we're talking about low income households, they might be a population that may not even be contributing to tax, right? Talking to them about, oh, this is a way to reduce your tax liability or your tax rate is irrelevant to them. And then when we're talking about systemic issues, like let let here's a real case scenario. I have a relative who um, had been working two jobs at a restaurant, worked at two different restaurants, hustling, grinding, and has a child. And she finally was able to get a job, a good job, quote unquote, at a an at a at an office, right? Working a white collar office job, nine to five, great with benefits. She was in her ninety day probation period, and we're in the middle of a pandemic. And if a kid comes into contact with someone with COVID, they have to stay home. And this happened twice in the middle of this school year of 2021, and she's lost that good job. She was trying, and now she's going back to working two jobs, 60 hours a week rather than 40 hours a week, trying to make it. And so the idea of trying to set money aside or even she doesn't even qualify for credit cards at this point is not even in her scope. And so we need to understand that when we're talking about systemic issues, yes, there's predatory lending. When we're talking about payday loans, we know that the poorest people tend to pay the most amount of money when it comes to getting, you know, buying, you know, buying a home, right? Because they're credit uh, scores tend to be a little bit lower. So they're paying more in interest or if they want a car, you know, I'm lucky that I live in New York city. So having a car here is optional, but in so many other places in this country, having a car isn't optional. It's required when your job or school is 10, 15 miles away. And so we just need to have a little bit more understanding or recognition that it's not just these big high level things like, yes, people of color have harder, have more difficulties in even getting a home mortgage loan. Let's talk about things like paid leave, right? <laughs> Maternity leave, all of these things that start at the very foundation, you know, losing your job because you have to stay home with your child who may not even be sick from COVID, but has to be quarantined and you can't go to work. That's an issue. Wally, I would love to, I worked with a, a African-American school here that was about 90, 95% Hispanic and African-American. And something I learned while working with them, which I, I didn't know until this time, was the concept and the mindset of education in the community. Because the school that I went to, it was like everybody was expected to go to college, right? And so, you know, if there were a small graduating class of about 15 people, I think all of us went to college, all 15. Whereas when I talked to the administration team of this particular school in this low income area, they said, Tony, you don't understand, like most of the families here, a lot of the families discourage their kids from going to college because it like creates a separation or they don't get support for going to college. My parents helped me pay for college. And what this administrator described for me was that that doesn't happen in that community. And you're closer to that than I am. Have, have you seen that? Was that your experience? That wasn't my experience. I think 
for so many people, going to college was like a ticket out, but getting there was really hard. You know, I wrote an article that generational wealth isn't just about money, but there's this institutional knowledge that needs to, that doesn't get passed down if the previous generation hasn't experienced it. So everything from filling out a financial aid form or taking even free classes for an SAT prep class or knowing how to buy a home. If your parents have never bought a home, doesn't mean, I mean, right now we're in a, in a world where you can Google everything pretty quickly. But even when I was going to college, when I was in um, high school trying to figure out what I needed to do, I was lost. I kind of had to look to my left and my right to see what the other students were doing and what they were talking about in order to really grasp what was the next step that I had to do. I didn't know that you had to pay for an SAT, you know, exam. And where was I going to get that money? Or that every time I applied for college, there was an application fee that I had to pay for. So I knew that it was really important for me to get to college, but I had so many hurdles trying to get there. And I, you know, I would say I'm, I'm kind of type A personality and I'm pretty motivated and I don't stop when I get one no or when I don't figure it out. But that can also be a big hurdle for a lot of people when you're trying to balance. I mean, I knew classmates of mine who not only went to school, but they were providing, they were actually providers for their family. And so the, you know, being able to go to the after school program or to be in extracurricular activities was not an option. Even when I went to college, one of the things that I had to decide was I I really wanted to go to the University of Florida. When I went to the University of Florida for their tour, I went by myself. I was 17 years old and I rented a little motel for like 40 bucks and I drove my car and I went there alone because my mom, at that point, my parents were separated. My mom couldn't bring four kids along with it. There was five of us, right? And I'm the oldest. So we couldn't bring five kids with us. She couldn't take off time from work. And so even my experience of going to the University of Florida for their like orientation period or their, not even orientation, but just their tour of the campus, I had families all around talking about this and that. I didn't even know the questions to ask. And so I felt really out of place. And my mom had a conversation with me because I knew I couldn't rely on my parents to help me fund education. But by this time, I had some ideas that, okay, I think I can take out student loans and I think that there's financial aid. But again, I'm the oldest of five kids. And my mom is like, I need you to stay here to help me, right? Like, who's going to help me cook and clean? Like, So many times I was the one going to parent teacher conferences because my mom was working. And so there's all of these additional hurdles that people of color in particular, but low income families have to deal with that I think is lost. Well, I think the litmus test when you're really measuring systemic versus personal responsibility is to ask, is your trajectory reproducible for the average person who grew up in your situation? And I'll ask that in two ways. One, was it reproducible when it when you did it? Was that something everyone could do or, or at least a number of people could do? And the second question would be, is it more reproducible today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is one of those things where, again, you have to, there, there needs to be a model. There needs to also be an example of somebody who is in your same situation. And to Jen's point, yes, financial literacy, getting this information is 
out there is really important. And the more people that look like us that have our type of stories, representation matters, right? People can begin to see that. I didn't have anybody in my family that I could talk to about even something as simple as how do I get into college? (laughs) What is that process like? Or how do I build wealth? Or how do I begin investing? I think one of the common, not philosophies, but one of the common paths to building wealth is through real estate. I think that's pretty understandable. You buy a home, you can rent it, you can sell it. But outside of that, it can be pretty foreign. And getting into real estate, the hurdle into getting into real estate is quite high, right? There's a huge down payment. Not only do you have to have a down payment, you have to pay these closing costs. And so making sure that the more of us can begin to share our stories about what is happening and realize that, yes, there are people who can read the the books, the blogs, listen to the podcast, but also there's going to be some accountability that needs to happen. And there's going to be some, I I don't like to use the term handholding because it can sound infantilizing, but like there needs to be some guidance that some of us will need along the way. I like that as a nice ending this conversation, because I think as I've heard your stories, we realize that indeed it's true. There are people who possess the skills, the ability, and the will to improve their finances. And look, you know, this is not magic. We've all found that there's a series of things you can do to make your finances better. These personal stories are important. They give us hope. They teach us that people who look like us and who look different from us can make it in this world that sometimes we struggle in. On the other hand, I think there are these systemic issues. And while we can focus on personal responsibility and should, as well as learn from all of you out there who are doing these amazing things, we also have to recognize that it is a complicated world we live in, one that is far from perfect, and that maybe some of these systemic changes will make the personal responsibility part a lot more reasonable and possible. And I think that's a very hopeful way of looking at this conversation, that we can both teach the personal responsibility as well as advocate for systemic change that will be good for everybody I think we could talk about these topics forever, certainly more than one podcast episode. So I'd like to end this one the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where we can find you if we want to know more. Jen, can we start with you? What is up next in your life and where can people find you? Thank you for having me. I This really shed a lot of light into like how we love to blame other things for the problems that we see, but like there's so much personal onus on us. You don't have to have a blog or a podcast or anything to help other people become wealthy. It could be free babysitting. It could be taking your kids' friends in. It could be so many things. But for me, that is a podcast. So Frugal Friends Podcast, we have a new episode every single Friday where we try to help people really buy out of this mentality of consumerism and spending everything you make and opt into more wealth building ways to spend your money. All right. And Tony, what's up next in your life and where can we find you? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, I'm working on a citywide financial transformation model. So I really am looking for partners and people that can work with me because you can't change the world by yourself. It's impossible. 
So I'm really trying to aggregate financial minds in Nashville, which is where I'm, my home base is. And so my, my first money event, Doc, I'm having my first money event. It's called Purpose of Wealth, purposeofwealth.live. It's just here in Nashville, but this is going to be a big turning point for me, I think, to try to get everybody on the same page going, hey, we're going to take ownership of Nashville and see if we can transform a city's finances totally, like top to bottom. If you want to learn more about that, what I'm doing, you can visit themillionairechoice.com. That's where you can get my book for free or check out my podcast. And Wally, what's up next in your life? And if people want to interact with you more, where can they find you? Yeah. So thank you so much for having me, Doc G. I am most active on Instagram. So people can find me there, which is financially thriving. It's my Instagram handle or visit me on my website, financiallythriving.com, where I do provide um, one-on-one financial coaching for those who know they need some help with budgeting, saving, or wealth building and want to get a personalized plan for themselves. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Tony Bradshaw, Wally Miller, and Jen Smith. That's a wrap. Have you checked out the Real Estate and Financial Independence podcast with Coach Carson? It is one of my favorite places to go to learn about real estate. There are two types of episodes, one where Chad, as the expert, tells you the tips and tricks to this asset class. And then he has guests on real-life proof-of-concept people who have used real estate in order to reach financial independence. It is a great podcast. I suggest you check it out. Just go to CoachCarson.com. Again, that's CoachCarson.com. It is the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast. Take a listen. You won't regret it. Tony, I, I wanted to say, you know, um, I, I called you out specifically when you bring up the term slavery. And, you know, so so here's one man's opinion. Um, mm-hmm. I think you got to be really careful using that word because there are so few things in life as bad as it that when you use mm-hmm. that term to signify something that isn't what slavery exactly was, it, I think, is very hard for people because, again, taking anything that is any less painful than slavery and using that term for it just is not easy. Uh, that's my personal opinion. I appreciate you for sharing that. Yeah, I just I feel like that it I think it, it I think it's painful for people to hear that term used when it's not really referring to it's it's somewhat the same with the Holocaust. Like if you use the Holocaust as a term to describe something that's bad, but not horrible it almost minimizes what the Holocaust is. And I think the same with slavery. If you're using slavery to describe something that's bad, but it's not, you know, enslaving people for hundreds of years and killing them and and raping them and and pillaging and taking all the things away, which very few things really are that level. uh, It's, it's hard to use that word. And that's just, again, my opinion, but uh, (laughs) I definitely, I definitely will get feedback on the episode. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I just, you know, I just, let me just share this with you, but the more, like at days, we never talked about this stuff. They use a verse called the borrower is slave to the lender, which is a biblical reference. But the more I'm going to be honest with all you guys, like the more I look at the current financial system, like there are people like us who know how it works, but the predatory, like all of that stuff, every bit of it is by design, every bit yeah. of it. And, mm-hmm. and that's why you go, okay, mm-hmm. when you really start looking at the system and looking at who really benefits from the system, I'm not talking about the millionaires. I'm talking about the people who really run the show. You start to un- you start to look at that and go, oh, 
really like that is how this whole thing is designed. And, you know, and right now, I mean, we're $30 trillion in debt for all real purposes. Our government is 100% bankrupt. When your GDP, when your debt is four four X what your uh, GDP is, and, and 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 we'll see, we'll see where it goes, you know. Um, but I'm I'm just hurting. The reason I use that word specifically is because I'm hurting for everybody that is is struggling, you know, worse than I struggled. Like, and I, I thought we had it. I didn't realize, like you guys, I didn't realize I was we were broke. It was just part of life, you know. I didn't wear the, I wore the the cheap shoes. They wore the the nice Izod stuff, and and which I think Jen was referring to. She didn't wear the nice designer clothes like the rich kids did, but she did. She wasn't doing too bad. But I think we've got to look at the system as a whole and go. We can we can all teach people about finances the same way the guys that came before us taught about it for the last thirty years, and we're going to get the same results, yeah. you yeah. know, until we actually face the fact that the system is designed this way. And try to change that system. We're gonna. We can work all we want, but the system's not. It's not. People's lives are not going to get that much better. But anyway, that's. I'm just very passionate about that. But I really appreciate your input on that. Uh, you know, being a white dude, I can't. I can't relate to that as as well as some other people could probably. Sometimes indentured use, servitude might be yeah, a better I was say, term. I use. In, I was just about to say that I use indentured <laughs> servitude because it takes away the racial aspect. I believe. Now, again, I could be historically wrong on that, but my understanding is that takes away some of the racial flavor of what it is, and that that is a little bit more. From my understanding, again, indentured servitude was pretty bad, but ultimately people were free to leave, and 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 you know there were some there were some freedoms there that that really weren't in slavery. Um, yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. But yeah, and and again, I don't I don't want to make such an issue of it, but I. I I've become much more aware of those type of things um, over the years. And I know certainly by having a podcast, you get lots of feedback and you start hearing, you know, from people what, what hurts them or doesn't hurt them or what, what affects them. Um, and well, feel hear, free to feel free to dub that in, or if you want me to get on and dub it in for you, I'll be glad to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That saves you some negative press there. You know what I may do is I'll, I'll take a listen, or I might even include this a conversation if you don't mind. I'm not sure. We'll figure something out. Um, but and I, I don't by any means feel like you were ma- meaning to be harmful in any way, shape, or form. I certainly didn't take that on those terms. Sorry, people sorry to get use, so serious. People kind of use good. the vocabulary that they've been taught, right? And so yeah. if you were with Dave for 15 years, that's not like a a no, a no, no word there. Yeah, like yeah. they're always saying the borrower, borrower is slave to the lender. Mm-hmm. So. All but, right. Yeah. Either way, this right. was a very pleasurable conversation. And I think a lot, a lot of good stuff came out there and I can't wait to edit it and put it together, but a great conversation. And it definitely went, the conversation went in a lot of ways. I think it should have, like, I think we spent a lot of time talking about your personal stories, the mindset shift, et cetera. And then I think we broadened it out towards the end, which I really like. So. Thanks for the opportunity, Doc. Yeah, thank you guys all for coming on and have a great day. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.